Well, good morning, church. Hope we're all doing well. Before we get started this morning, I want to invite you to our congregational council. You may have seen on your way in this morning, there's a table out in the lobby with a red tablecloth on it, and it's got these booklets on that table. And this is information for our time. And, and really, if you don't know what council is, council is us just taking time to look back on the past year at the many, many ways that God has been good to us, that God has been gracious to us, and also taking time to look ahead into 2017 as to where God might be leading us. And so council is next Sunday, January 29th. It starts at 6 p.m. It's in our Warehouse 54 space. If you want milkshakes, and it's my guess that the majority of us do, be there at 5.30 p.m. Before we jump into God's word together this morning, let me pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we take these next several minutes to come and to dive into your word, Your word that you promise us is powerful and effective. Your word that you tell us does not return void. May we over these next several minutes, as we talk about unity and our call to reflect the self-sacrificing love that you pour out on us and the ways that, that, that conflict can absolutely take our eyes off of our mission, our purpose, off of you. May we, over these next several minutes, we just want to give you free reign in this space, that you be fierce among us, that you drive your truth coming out of these words of life deep into our hearts. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever found yourself in conflict with someone? Right? There's a disagreement. There is something going on between you and someone else. And honestly, that situation is so difficult that you cannot see a way forward in that relationship. So not just a simple misunderstanding, but real hard conflict has occurred between you and someone else. And honestly, for all intents and purposes, that relationship is bleeding out. At one of my prior jobs, I was working in the area of quality assurance. And I did that for a couple of years and felt the desire to expand my skill set into production. And so was able to talk my way into a lat move into the production planning department And once that lat move, that lateral move got green light, I would begin to tell people about this move and they would get this funny look on their faces and in my mind I'm thinking, okay, what do you know that I don't know? And they would say something like, oh, that's the department that so-and-so works in. And -and so-and-so was this notoriously difficult person who worked in the production planning department and I was going to have to work with them. But I'm usually pretty laid back 
and I can usually get along with anyone, so I thought, no worries. And six months later, I actually left that production planner role. That person was so extremely difficult. That conflict between me and -and so-and-so was so sharp that I went to my new bosses to explain the deal that this situation was not going to work. And despite their promises to me that things would change, I was done. And I worked out a jump out of production back into QA. That conflict between me and that other person was so sharp. That situation was so broken. It was too much. And I bailed. And so often I think that when we hear stories like this, there's a tendency to want to ask the question, that whole thing, well, whose fault was it? And I used to be there, right? When that whole story played out almost 20 years ago, I could give you 10 reasons why what happened there was not my fault. But today, when I look at that same situation, the thing that really strikes me is the fact that in that conflict, because it was not handled well, but in that conflict, there were no winners. Regardless of who did what, everybody lost. My desire to expand my skill set into production, that came to an end The production planning department that had been training me for about six months, their investment in me was lost. That notoriously difficult person, while they didn't get fired, that person had once again lived up to their reputation as difficult to work with, and they essentially cut themselves off from any mobility, let alone an upward mobility within that company. And that's the reality with any conflict, with anything that threatens our unity, the stakes are high. And if that conflict is not navigated well, if unity is not safeguarded, serious devastating fallout will occur. And in those situations, everybody loses. I wonder if you know this from your own personal experience ever been part of a conflict, regardless of who did what, ever been part of a conflict where things were not not navigated well and it got ugly? I wonder if that's you, if you'd be willing to just put your hands up. And I want us to look around, right? So many of us have our hands up right now. What was that experience like? How did that experience, how did the fallout from that experience feel? Right, if you could pick one word to describe that situation, that conflict, one word to describe the fallout, what word would you use? Anyone want to share your word? Painful. Frustrating. The words keep coming right? Embarrassing. We could go on and on. But the reality for us is that conflict is a part of normal everyday life. Do you see it the second you dial into TV or any other media outlet? Yes, you do. Sometimes it feels like it's the only thing that's being covered by the media. Do you see it in our community? 
Yes, you do. Do you see it in your homes? You can ask my kids on this one, yes, and it can be over the most insignificant things. Hey, who guzzled all the Mountain Dew? I didn't get any. (laughs) And granted, someone chugging the Mountain Dew is not an earth-shattering thing, but it is still a pocket of conflict, still disrupts the unity inside our family. Do you see it in the church? Absolutely. And so this morning we are going to see that we have to proactively chase hard after unity in all areas of life, but especially inside the church. Because that's where Paul goes as we dive into Philippians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul will always, always, always chase hard after unity. That we are together, brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are together on mission to see God glorified, to see the darkness pushed back, to see the good news of Jesus advance. And as Philippians chapter 4 opens up, there is a conflict within this church at Philippi that is threatening the unity of this young church. And Paul throws a spotlight on that conflict and calls out the two people engaged in that conflict. We see that in Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, therefore, I'm going to get one word into this and stop. Right, so after Paul pointing these Philippians to Jesus again and again and again, and this is how Paul typically writes, After absolutely pointing these Philippians to Christ and the new life that is available in him, right? Paul has just said it, said at the end of chapter three that the thing that he wants more than anything else is to know Jesus more and more and more. And to get that, he is pressing on, he is pressing in, he is forgetting what is behind, he is straining towards what's ahead. He has set himself up as an example for these Philippians. As they work hard to figure out what chasing hard after Jesus looks like, Paul says, you can look at me as a life that's lived out, pursuing Christ. And what that looks like in in the middle of just normal, gritty, everyday life. And so as we go on in these verses, I want you to pick up on the language here that just screams togetherness and usness and unity. My brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Right, so lots of words here that that scream unity. But beyond that, what Paul is doing is he is circling back and starts to pull forward some of the same ideas, some of the same words that he's already used within the book of Philippians. We see that back in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, where Paul wrote, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith, or for the faith of the gospel. And when we work through these verses back in the fall, 
Remember that we said what Paul is doing is he is conjuring up for these Philippians. Philippi is a military town and he is conjuring up for these Philippians this image of a Roman shield wall. Soldiers standing together as one, fighting together as one, shields locked together in the front, shields locked together overhead, advancing as one to take ground, advancing as one to defeat the enemy. So in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is going to circle back to the groundwork that he's already laid in Philippians chapter 1. He's circling back to the groundwork that he's already laid in Philippians chapter 2 where he wrote in verses 3 and 4, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so Paul has been building to this moment, here in chapter 4, really throughout this entire letter. And so he says in verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Even in the way that Paul makes his appeal to these two ladies, that word entreat has this sense of because of our close relationship, and again, Paul is stressing the togetherness here, but because of our close relationship, let me call on you to do the right thing here. Let me encourage you to agree. That Paul is calling out these two ladies might feel like he's calling them out to embarrass them, but honestly, the opposite is true. For Paul, and remember, Paul is in Rome, but for Paul to have heard about this situation, whatever this conflict was, this conflict is obviously impacting this church. So much so that everyone would have been aware of exactly Paul was talking about if he had danced around this issue without naming names. As best as I can tell, Paul is not from Lancaster County, Paul is not going to do the passive-aggressive thing. And in the literary style that these kind of letters take, it would have actually been more harsh for Paul to do the passive-aggressive thing and not name names. So that even in the way that Paul calls out these two ladies, even though to us it seems heavy-handed, Paul is guided by his love for these two people and guided by his love for this church. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul closes these verses here by by moving to get help from this, this person in Philippi, and we don't know who this person is that he calls true companion, but obviously someone that he trusts. Paul is moving to get help for these two, and again, in this verse, notice the language that just screams, us, together, and unity. So where does that put us? What are you and I supposed to take from this? Well, let me start by asking you this. What's at stake here? 
And we can do better than that. So let's dial in what's at stake for these two women. What's been at stake for you when you've been locked in a conflict? Obviously, the relationship suffers. But what starts to happen when people start taking sides and, hey, on this one, I'm with Euodia. No, no, I'm with Syntyche. You can see how those lines of unity within the church quickly begin to fracture. So not only is the relationship between these two ladies at stake, but also relationship with others. Does their influence get compromised? It does. Does their witness get compromised? It does. Which leads us to what's at stake for the church. Will the church potentially lose sight of its purpose? Can in the middle of this thing the church lose sight of its mission? Did these people start to wound each other? I said before that, that we are together on mission, right? The purpose of the church is that we are together on mission to see God glorified, to see the darkness pushed back, to see the advance of the good news of Jesus. So how does conflict, how does disunity get in the way of that? And the answer is that when I'm focused on attacking you, or I'm focused on defending myself against you, that's the thing that fills my field of vision, not the purpose, not the mission of the church. Which leads us to what is at stake for the city of Philippi. Right? If this conflict begins to spread, and in that way, conflict is like a cancer in that it can easily spread, and once it does, it will drain away life. But let's say this conflict at Philippi, the church there, begins to spread, and, and you are living in Philippi, right? You're, you're not a believer, but you are someone who is seriously beginning to wrestle with the claims of Christ, and you look in on this church, this church that is supposed to be the body of Christ, and it's riddled with conflict. Who's going to say, yep, I want to be part of that mess? No one is. And so the bottom line reality for us is that conflict has the potential to absolutely knock a church out of the game, to blind a church to its purpose and to neuter the appeal of following Jesus to an already unbelieving and already skeptical world. Why do you think Jesus says in John chapter 13, a new commandment I give to you? that you love one another just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. What Jesus is saying here is that people will know that you belong to me, right? The screaming neon sign that indicates that you are a follower of Christ is that self-sacrificing love that you show to each other. Right, look back to the start of this church in Philippi. We saw this in Acts 16 back in the fall. But when that Philippian church is planted, when that church is launched, right, the church family consists of 
a wealthy fashion entrepreneur, a formerly demon-possessed slave girl, and a hardcore jailer. The kind of people that, that just don't come from different parts of town, they come from completely different universes. So what is it that allows them to be able to come together to be the church when normally these kind of people don't even give each other the time of day? Well, obviously something has happened to them. Something has, has taken place in their lives that has caused them to totally deviate from the script that culture gives us of who's supposed to hang out with who. And the easiest way to explain this is to say that the one thing that unites the church, and that is Jesus. The one thing that unites the church is far greater than the thousand things that could divide it. Like status or address, what part of town are you from? Are you from the the, the part of town that's on the right side of the tracks? And background and education, and that list could go on and on. And this is what Jesus is getting at in John chapter 13. When people can come together, people who, if you do culture's math, have no no business hanging out together. When people who are so very different in so many ways are able to come together despite those differences. The fact that we are able to find unity despite the many potential sources of conflict is simply an indication that something supernatural is happening within the church. That there has been a radical realignment of our hearts, that something has changed, that something has so impacted our lives, or more accurately, that someone has so impacted our lives, that the only way to explain it is our belonging to Christ. And that for anyone curious enough to ask the questions, That shouldn't be surprising because for us to reach out in a self-sacrificing kind of love, the kind of love that builds unity, to show that that kind of love is us simply following in the footsteps of our master Jesus. But for the Philippians, the kind of supernatural unity that marked them back in in the early days, that's now under attack. And so you and I have to know that unity is fragile. This church, MBIC, has been known for and has enjoyed a sense of unity that honestly I have rarely seen in a church before. God has so richly blessed us But if it can happen in a a place like Philippi, where there was a sense of togetherness that allowed a fashion entrepreneur, a slave girl, and a jailer to come together as family, and now the cracks of disunity, the cracks of conflict are threatening to fracture that unity, you and I, we have to know that if our unity is not protected, if conflict is not handled well, if we are not all, every single one of us proactively praying for and fighting for our unity, that that unity can quickly disappear, can quickly erode. And so in the disagreements, in the conflicts that are here amongst us, if I ask us the questions that I asked of Philippi before, but I make those personal, 
What's at stake for you? What's at stake for Mannheim BIC? What's at stake for Mannheim and beyond? The answers that we gave in terms of Philippi, those same answers apply to us. And honestly, I have to tell you that for me, as a pastor, this is one of my biggest head scratchers. Because we will all sit here and nod our heads and clap our hands and say, yay for unity. But whenever I talk about unity, give it five days. And I'm being generous there, right? It's usually in reality a day or two. And I'll get word that someone is throwing hand grenades at someone else, a brother, a sister, in Christ on social media, that there's a pocket of gossip, that someone is tearing someone else down. And I think to myself, why are we doing this? Why can we not see that our actions, our words, our attitudes, those are just not between you and that other person. Those threaten our entire body. There is too much at stake here. And so let me close with the how. I invite you to right now in this moment take a deep look at your life and if you are in conflict, if you are in a disagreement with a brother, a sister in Christ, I implore you, I beg you to go to that person and start a conversation. To go and make it right. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. So that if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And then in Matthew 18, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And the beauty of these two verses is that Jesus is telling us whether you are the offender, whether you are the offended, if you are in conflict with someone, go to that person and begin the conversation of reconciliation and of restoration. And if you get stuck in that process, right, this is where Matthew 18 directs us. We do not have time to unpack that this morning. But if you get stuck in that process, it's the reason that in Philippians chapter 4, Paul is, is asking his true companion to help out these two people. If you get stuck as you walk the process of seeking to bring restoration, get help. Reach out to someone on our staff. Reach out to one of our pastors. Reach out to our leadership board. You do not have to walk it alone. Get help. And I realize that process of bringing restoration, it feels big, it feels scary, it feels overwhelming. It is way too easy to allow that other person to insist that that other person makes the first move. Right? It is way too easy to, to give Give that person the cold shoulder and allow that relationship to stay on ice rather than doing the hard work of reconciliation. But we have to push for unity. There is simply too much at stake. But let's not stop there. If we move forward, 
I've got this lock screen on my iPhone that is a thumb scan. And I swear the thing only works about half the time. I'm sure it's operator error, but as I try to get into my phone, it is always slowing me down. But that's not always a bad thing. And the other day I was thinking that there's an analogy here when it comes to unity. I wish we all had a lock screen that slowed us down in our interactions with others. A lock screen, a filter that would slow us down and force us to think, this thing that I'm about to do, does it help or does it hurt? Will this attitude, will this action, these words build up or tear down our unity as a church? Because if we can slow ourselves down enough to think through the implications of this question, hey, that social media comment that I'm about to post, is this going to build up my brother and sister in Christ or is it going to cause them issues? Hey, that email that I'm about to send, hey, that conversation I'm about to jump into between me and somebody else talking about a third person, I'm convinced that so many of the attitudes, the actions, the words that cause our conflict, that cause our disagreement, would never even see the light of day. So whether you are looking at conflict that you are embroiled in now, or you are looking ahead to the future, to those things that help to build our unity, you will never ever be able to truly do this unless you know beyond a doubt who you are, your identity as a son, as a daughter of the most high God. So so know, know who you are. The absolute key to our unity is you knowing that you are secure as a daughter, as a son of the most high God. Because it's only as you know, not intellectually, but it's only as you know deep inside your soul that you are ultimately secure. That no matter what happens to you, that God has got you, that you are good no matter what. It's only as you know that your future with him is certain that you will be free to die to your rights that you will be free to serve those people that you would rather not serve, that you will be free to not get your way, that you will be free to lose and to let others win. And this is the reason that Paul has been pointing these Philippians back to Jesus again and again and again throughout the book of Philippians because it's only when you know who you are in him that you're able to step out of the way And say, you know what, I do not need to win this fight. I do not need to win this conflict because our unity together is so much more important than me being right. There's too much at stake. That brings us to our final point. Know who he is. See, if our unity flows from knowing that you are secure in Christ that you don't have to fight for first place because Jesus has already secured first place for you. That kind of of locked-on, untouchable security will only ever be found in the gospel. That God sent his son Jesus to you to live the perfectly obedient life that you could not live, to die the sacrificial death that was yours on the cross, 
to arise victoriously from the grave. Who he is and what he has done is always the final word that I look to leave you with on a Sunday morning. And so to bring us back to that final word, let me take us back to where Paul takes us, where he grounds his call for this church in Philippi to be united. Let me take us back to Philippians chapter two and allow these words to wash over you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.